The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, the two founding fathers who would be friends, enemies, and then friends again, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. The 51-year relationship between these frenemies is complicated but telling, offering critical insight into the very delicate and increasingly political first couple decades of our nation. Looking back, it's proven to be one of our republic's best examples of respectful disagreement. The mutually perplexing association between presidents number two and number three, next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn with the National Museum of American Presidents. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. We're honored to have Gordon Wood with us for today's episode on the very complex relationship between POTUS number two, John Adams, and POTUS number three, Thomas Jefferson. Professor Wood is certainly one of the nation's most well-versed revolutionary historians, writing over a dozen best-selling books on the period. For his work, he's earned a long list of awards, including a Pulitzer Prize and the National Humanities Medal awarded by POTUS 44, Barack Obama. Gordon, thank you for helping us figure out these two frenemies, if you will. I'm delighted to be here. Dr. Wood, thank you so much for joining us. Let me step back for a moment before we get to Friends Divided and talk about your wonderful book, The Radicalism of the American Revolution. In that book, you paint a picture of our nation's beginnings that is somewhat different from the more conservative revolutions seen by other historians. What led you to that topic and what convinced you of the radical nature of the American Revolution and its aftermath? Well, the notion that the American Revolution was conservative, I think, came out of the uh, implications of the French Revolution, which was, of course, truly radical in that it it led to a reign of terror and much violence, killing of, of many of the revolutionaries. They turned on each other. That didn't happen in the United States. And as a consequence, Americans, many of them, the Federalists in particular, John Adams and John Quincy Adams, uh, for example, argued that uh, our revolution was conservative compared to the French Revolution. But in fact, when you look at the uh, material, uh, the revolution itself, as I was doing over the past 50 years, I realized that they started out really quite radical. They, they were establishing republics, which they had been monarchists. Uh, that was itself radical. Most of the states had a series of reforms they planned, uh, and many of them were implemented. That is, uh, changing the uh, punishment system, doing away with uh, bodily mutilations, uh, creating systems of public education. They changed their inheritance laws uh, and slavery. And, of course, the North was quite successful in that. They all, the northern states, by 1804, had abolished slavery. And... Um, to do the established Anglican Church. So a series of reforms that themselves were radical, but then beyond that, the revolution took 
had implications and the social development that went way beyond what the revolutionary leaders did. And you create, created a middle-class society, essentially, particularly in the North, that was far more democratic, far more commercial, far more bank-ridden than any of the revolutions intended. So it was radical in many, many different ways. And that was the gist of the book I wrote. Well, it's, it's a wonderful book for sure, and certainly changed my perception of the American Revolution. Let, let's, let's now turn to Friends Divided. It's a story of two men who together helped change the world, but whose friendship was tested mightily over the years. But first, let's talk about what brought them together in the first place. How and when did Adams and Jefferson meet? And can you remind our listeners of their respective roles and how they worked together during the American Revolution? Well, they met at the Continental Congress in 1775, the Second Continental Congress. Uh, Jefferson missed the first one because he uh, became ill. Uh, he sent a, a, a list of uh, directions of what ought to be done that became a pamphlet, a very radical pamphlet. But they met in the Second Continental Congress, and immediately they attracted one another because they were both quite radical on that issue. War had broken out in April uh, at Lexington and Concord of 1775, but there were still many delegates who were uh, still tied to the crown and still tied to the empire. But Adams and Jefferson were not. They were really out for revolution, and so that brought them together. And that was their first contact, and, and that's when Jefferson realized how important Je Adams was in, in his speeches in the Congress. Jefferson wasn't much of a speechmaker, but both of them bonded, and I think that was the first. Then they became more more friendly even when they were both serving abroad as ministers in France during the 1780s. And that, I think, is when they really became close friends. Mm -hmm. Because Jefferson was a widower at that point, and um, the Adams family uh, sort of adopted him. And they often went to places, tourists, went to museums, went to symphonies together. And so I think they became really close, much closer mm -hmm. uh, in France than they even had been in, in Philadelphia in 1775. Mm -hmm. Now, they became so close, but they came from very different backgrounds. Can you comment a bit on how that affected how they viewed each other in the revolution? Yeah, they couldn't have been more different in their backgrounds. I mean, Jefferson is a slaveholding planter, one of the wealthiest members of Virginia society. Uh, Adams comes from a middle-class background. Uh, they both were, of course, well-educated, and both were readers and, and uh, interested in ideas. But uh, Adams is, uh, becomes an attorney uh, and a very successful one, and his money is really earned money. Jefferson inherited slaves and land from his father and then more slaves and more land from his father-in-law, his wife's father. So that's the, the background. They couldn't have, and the two societies, Virginia, of course, is a slave-ridden big state, big colony, and, and Massachusetts is a more, much more commercial and a northern society with relatively few slaves. Uh, maybe 2% of the society was enslaved, but nothing like the plantation uh, tobacco-producing uh, colony of, of, of Virginia. So their backgrounds are very, very different. And you show throughout the book that one source of contention that grew over the years between Jefferson and Adams stemmed from their divergent views on the nature of man. 
and you show those you've evolved over time. Can you comment a bit on that? Well, Jefferson is what I guess we would call today kind of limousine liberal. He's <laughs> utterly uh, liberal in his outlook, uh, radical in his outlook. He was as radical as, a, as an 18th century politician could be. He, and in those days, being radical in the English-speaking world was to believe in minimal government. The less government, the better. That's what linked him to uh, to uh, Thomas Paine, for example, mm-hmm. uh, and, and others uh, who were quite radical. He believed that he, the human nature was benign, was good, was naturally good, and that if you just release, if, if you could just get the government off your back, uh, you, you, the natural sociability of people would bring them together. It's the left-wing view in the 18th century of ultra-radicals. Adams, on the other hand, was a cynical and had a pessimistic view of human nature. He thought people were not naturally good and that they were they're selfish. They would do things that were in their own interest. There was not much virtue to, to be counted on. In, in America or in anywhere else. Uh, Jefferson, on the other hand, had a very favorable view of the United States. He thought we're, we had a responsibility to bring republicanism to the whole world. He sort of created the notion, the uh, exceptional notion of the United States history, that we had our kind of mission to, <clears throat> to bring democracy to the rest of the world, uh, republicanism, as he would have called it. And... and uh, he thought we had a, a special kind of society. Uh, Adams said, no, that's not true. There's no special providence for the United States. We were just as corrupt, just as vicious, just as uh, bad as any other nation. So he had, they had very different outlook based on their, their basic uh, difference of, of human nature. But Dr. Wood, I, I found it interesting. You, you note this, that a couple of times Jefferson even said that he thought his generation could not constrain future generations being so radical of saying that any political solutions that he was able to accomplish could be utterly done away with and redone by that future generation. He felt that the, the dead hand of the past mm-hmm. did not limit the, the, the present. So he, that's ultimately what makes him quite a radical. He felt yeah. that every, he went so far as to, uh, to say every 19 years, all the uh, laws, all the constitutions out there expire and we'll start over. He counted the generation to be about 19 years. Um, Madison, his friend James Madison, was much uh, shrewder than, than Jefferson in many respects, less naive, you might say. Mm-hmm. And he uh, very tactfully talked <laughs> Jefferson out of that view, although Jefferson remained committed to the notion that the past should not hang on the present. And of course, that would be the view of, of any good radical. Mm-hmm. You want to change things and you want to keep moving them. And you don't want the past to, to drag you down. And, and that certainly was Jefferson's view. He is an ultra-liberal in that sense, or ultra-radical, an 18th century type radical. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that really makes him quite different from, from Adams. Now, the, uh, the radical French Revolution, as you noted earlier, brought to the forefront the differences between these two men and among the American people. How and why did, the, did these events so far away have such an impact on the United States, and what were the respective views of Adams and Jefferson on that revolution? Well, the French Revolution was, of course, the most cataclysmic event, I guess you'd say, of the 
uh, of the late 18th century, and it, it, it was a, a world historical event. Although many of the French participants thought that um, they had gotten involved in their French Revolution because of the American Revolution. And Jefferson certainly thought that he, his, his revolution was the uh, stimulant for the French Revolution. But it took such a radical form uh, where thousands of people were being killed uh, by uh, the guillotine, a lot of the leaders, thousands of aristocrats were executed by the guillotine. By 1783, had a reign of terror. Jefferson's response to this, his Secretary of State at this point, under in the Washington administration, was was very, uh, how to put it, naive or optimistic. Mm-hmm. And his his protege uh, back in France uh, wrote him and said. Look, Mr. Jefferson, many of your friends, your former friends, are being guillotined. And he kind of passes this off and he says, Well, that's the price you have to pay for, you know, for liberty. And if only an Adam and Eve were left alive and left free, it would be worth it. I mean, wow. it was quite an extraordinary Jeez. statement he wrote yeah. in this. It was a February uh, a letter in February of 1793, which led Conor Cruz O'Brien, the Irish historian and journalist, uh, who was writing a book about Jefferson in this period, when he came across this letter, he was just uh, horrified. And he said, well, that makes Jefferson the Paul Pot of the 18th century. Oh, you know, gosh. Paul Pot being yeah. the Cambodian leader, yes. who's Marxist, who, who thought that we, millions of people could be killed on behalf of his cause. That was Jefferson. But, of course, he never implemented that. He never had an opportunity to do, and I'm not sure he ever would. But that's how he felt about revolution. He felt it was was necessary, and you had to change things in order to, the, the French society was so corrupt and so aristocratic ridden, so monarchist, that it required this kind of cleansing. We, on the other hand, we Americans are blessed because we're already Republicans, in fact, even before the revolution. So that was his view, and of course that was appalling to Adams. Adams thought the French Revolution was just a horrific event and, and totally uh, European and not something that should be followed. And he he, he sided with uh, with Burke, Edmund Burke, the conservative uh, statesman who, who you know, although Burke was not conservative within Britain, Britain's culture, he certainly took the conservative view of the French Revolution and Adams backed him up all the way. If you want to learn more about our guest, Gordon Wood, and any of his amazing books, you can simply visit AmericanPOTUS.com. You'll find a resource section there with his bio and web links. And while you're there, we'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast, as well as any ideas you may have for future episodes. Now, you note throughout that Adams wrote and advocated for order especially a system based on the English Constitution. Where did his admiration for that Constitution come from, especially in the wake of his very recent advocacy of independence from that very system? Yeah, he, Adams adored the English Constitution, as did many Americans, but they thought it had become corrupted, and they wanted to improve on it with their Republican versions of the English Constitution. And Adams certainly thought that, is true in 1776 as well. But what he really wanted to do was make sure you have a balance between the democratic 
monarchical and aristocratic elements in the English Constitution, which meant the Crown, the House of Lords, and the House of Commons. And, and so he saw America's constitutions as being Republican versions of the English Constitution. And he wanted to maintain that. As, as our society became more democratic in the 1780s, Adams actually felt that our society was going in the wrong direction and we needed to move back toward the English. And he predicted in his uh, essays written in the early 90s, newspaper essays, that uh, we would sooner or later have to abandon, at least for the Senate and the, uh, and the presidency, abandon the electoral process. We'd have to make these offices at first for life, and then eventually they would have to become hereditary because elections were becoming so corrupt and so faction-ridden that uh, no society could sustain them for long. And so he wanted to move back towards the English Constitution. Uh, it was totally out of touch with American opinion at mm-hmm. that point. And it was an embarrassment for him uh, that his essay, he never really uh, disavowed them, but he didn't talk about them uh, when he was in office too often. Mm-hmm. Now, despite that being out of touch with with the growing trends in America, of course, Adams becomes the second president. And while he was president, he was assailed from both sides. What do you think were his greatest accomplishments as president and his greatest failures? Well, he was a shelf on both sides, meaning the Hamiltonian wing of the Federalist Party never liked Adams, and they wanted to get rid of him. And, of course, he was deeply opposed by the uh, Jeffersonian Republicans of being a Federalist. So he was uh, he saw himself as his own man, and he mm-hmm. was independent, and he was not very political. That is to say, he had lacked political skills, skills that Jefferson had. Jefferson was really an expert politician. He knew how to manipulate people and and get them to do what he wanted them to do. Adams was not that kind of person. But Adams' greatest achievement, I think, uh, was his sending of a a peace mission to end the quasi-war that had broken out between the United States and France. Mm -hmm. It, we were on the verge of war, and it was, they were seizing our ships. We were really uh, feeling that, that war was going to come. And he made one last desperate effort to, do, to, to end that possibility, to, to extinguish the idea of, of war. And he sent a peace mission, which uh, in the climate of the time, uh, he didn't consult anyone. He was his own man. He didn't even consult his cabinet. He, I'm not sure he even consulted his wife, Abigail. Hmm. And, and it, it was successful. Napoleon had come into it and was willing to end the Quasar War. It cost Adams his, his re-election. Uh, the peace that came came after the election. In other words, just the sending of the mission was so offensive to most Federalists that they disavowed him. Hmm. Hamilton wrote an essay, a pamphlet, condemning his action. Uh, during the campaign, and, and of course, the success of his mission didn't come until after he was defeated for the presidency. So, but it was a great achievement. I mean, it, it saved the country from a war, and, and I think that uh, he realized that. He considered it to be the greatest thing that he had ever done, uh, and I think with good reason. So when Jefferson defeats him, Jefferson becomes the third president. That begins a long period of separation and recrimination between the two men. 
Jefferson comes in determined to roll back the Federalist structure that had been created under Washington and Adams. What was he able to accomplish in that restructuring, and what do you think were Jefferson's accomplishments and failures as president? Well, Adams was so offended by that defeat, of course, that he refused to attend the inauguration of, mm-hmm. of uh, Thomas Jefferson, mm-hmm. his, his close friend, uh, and they didn't speak for, for 12 years. Mm. Jefferson comes in with a real revolutionary program, <clears throat> and he later said, my, my election was, was the revolution of 1800 was as important as the revolution of, eight, of 1776. In some respects, that's true. He saw his election thwarting the Federalist attempt to establish monarchy, the Republicans, the Jeffersonian Republicans, thought that the Federalists were out to bring back the English monarchy, that Hamilton's program, uh, which was based on the English financial system, the Bank of England and the stock market and all of the commercial attributes of, of England's uh, financial program, that was going to be repudiated. Now, Jefferson did turn the clock. He eliminated most every the Federalists, uh, but he couldn't get rid of the bank because it had been given a charter, a 20-year charter. Uh, but he did roll back other aspects of the uh, of the Federalist uh, program of the 1790s. His greatest achievement, occur- of course, occurred in 1803 with the acquisition of Louisiana. Of he doubled the size of the country. He was very lucky that Napoleon's effort to take Saint-Domingue back from the black rebels, failed, and so he was ready to get rid of Louisiana. And we bought it for, what, $15 million, which was a bargain, doubling the size of the United States. And it fulfilled Jefferson's dream of uh, taking over the whole continent uh, and having land for farmers, for yeoman farmers, for the foreseeable future. So he was widely celebrated for that. He uh, made some mistakes uh, with his embargo, and uh, which occurred with, with his conflict with England, uh, and uh, that hurt him uh, and made left a legacy for his successor, James Madison, to have to deal with, which, of course, eventually ended up with the War of 1812. But uh, Jefferson certainly had a successful two-term. We'll continue our talk about Adams and Jefferson in just a moment. But first, a quick reminder to find, like, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We'll keep you up to date on the newest episodes of the podcast and offer up some occasional bits of POTUS wit and wisdom from time to time. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Now, as you show, Jefferson and Adams had complex and differing views on slavery. Do you know, did they ever discuss the topic, and how should we view their legacies today, given their active support or their passive acceptance of that really horrible institution? Well, of course, slavery is the most difficult issue to deal with in this period or in any period of the colonial period. Jefferson's a slaveholder. Adams was not. Uh, Adams hated slavery and had no truck with it. But he, in his correspondence, when they renewed their correspondence, Adams stayed away from mentioning it, except in 1819 when the Missouri crisis became so severe that it had to be talked about. And Adams more or less said to Jefferson, look, I understand 
your problem, meaning the Southerners, the Southern planters, slaveholding problem. And I, I'm not going to preach to you. I, I don't uh, have any uh, support for slavery, but I'm not going to preach to you about what should be done. It's your problem. You're going to have to solve it. That was more or less Adams' view. Jefferson, of course, started his career as a as a radical. He opposed slavery in Virginia. He actually introduced a bill to abolish slavery. He didn't go anywhere, but he was certainly uh, made himself prominent in Virginia with his anti-slavery views, and he certainly has influenced the. Northwest ordinance abolition of slavery in the in the Northwest, but as time went on, Jefferson came to realize that slavery was not going to disappear as readily as as many thought. And I think by by the eighteen twenties and and the in the aftermath of the Missouri crisis, he became much more conservative. The last six years of his life, he some of his letters. He, he really sounds like a, a, a Southern uh, fire eater defending the South and its independence and its peculiar institution against the Northern advocates of, of anti-slavery advocates. So he becomes very conservative on slavery in the last years of his life. And, and Adams more or less, we talk a little bit about it, but Adams because he wanted to preserve the friendship that they had reestablished, uh, doesn't preach to him and doesn't really uh, nag him about it. Now, we know that Adams is one of only two presidents to have a son also elected to that office. Did, did he view that as some type of redemption? Well, he was very happy about his son's election. Fortunately, he died before the 1828 election when uh, his son was lost to, to Jackson. So he was, he was delighted with that. Jefferson congratulated him and all, but Jefferson was not happy with John Quincy Adams. He saw him as a consolidationist, as an anti-slave person, and uh, was very upset by his program for federal internal improvements because he thought that was something that the federal government shouldn't be involved in and it would lead to federal uh, federal involvement in slavery or, or in anti-slavery. So he's not happy with the, the JQA uh, um, administration, but he certainly was polite to to his friend Adams and, and all. But Adams, it was just fortunate that Adams did not witness what happened to his son because his son had the same experience. He had a one-term president. Now, it was only after Jefferson left the White House that a reconciliation with his former friend started to appear possible. What led them to coming back together, and how was that friendship manifested? Well, they were separated for 12 years, and Dr. Benjamin Rush, who was a mutual friend but much closer to Adams, set about a two-year campaign to bring these two old revolutionaries together. He felt it was essential for the future of the country that, the, as he said, that the North and the South should speak to one another and, and explain what the revolution was about from these two different points of view. And so he worked at it, and without his help, it wouldn't have happened. I mean, they, But once they got reconciled, then uh, they began exchanging letters. Jefferson didn't write as many as Adams wrote, twice as many, as, as at least twice as many, maybe even more than that, if I remember correctly. 
but Adams realized that you know this is not an this is not an equal relationship. He at one point I think it's in 1820 he asked Jefferson, "How many letters did you receive? How many correspondence did you have last year?" And Jefferson responded, "Well, I had about 1,200 letters sent to me. 1,200." Adams couldn't believe it. He had only 120. <laughs> so and and of course Jefferson was. I mean, they, they were two different personalities and two different reputations. <laughs> Jefferson is a superstar, an international superstar. He's corresponding with, with people all over the world, with the Tsar of Russia. This was not Adams at all. Adams had much more limited correspondence, which helps explain why he had more time to write to, to Jefferson. They wrote about 150 letters to each other over this next rest of their lives from 1812 to 1826, when they both died on the same day, July 4th, 50th anniversary, the golden jubilee of, of the Declaration of Independence. And so it was providential because he thought that this, these two men should die on the same day. I found it interesting that even after those years of being apart, when they did start writing, Adams felt very free to use humor to kind of needle Jefferson a bit. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, they, the correspondence survived, I think, because Jefferson was so polite and was so he put up with, with this razzing and needling <laughs> by uh, Adams. I mean, Adams was the kind of person who was, he didn't needle him about slavery, but he did needle him about the French Revolution. He, mm-hmm. In 1815, when Napoleon was defeated at uh, Waterloo, and the Bourbons were back in the throne of France, I mean, Adams says to Jefferson, so what do you think of the French Revolution now, Mr. Jefferson? <laughs> I mean, and Adams, Jefferson sort of just accepted this. He, he, he loved, they loved each other. Uh, they came to it. Jefferson tried to explain to James Madison, who couldn't uh, understand how Jefferson could be, befriend uh, such a quirky, unusual guy like John Adams, and who was so conservative. And, and Jefferson tried to explain, he said, well, once you break through his crusty exterior, he is a warm, affectionate person and a lovely, you know, a, a, just a warm person. Everyone who got to know Adams said the same thing, that, that he, he, he was just an amiable person. And uh, it was not easy to explain that to James Madison, who never liked Adams. Maybe this is getting too into the, the logistical weeds, but did both Adams and Jefferson save the letters from each other just to show that it, you know they were they both considered oh, them that oh, yes. important? Oh, by the early 1780s, they realized that if this United States could survive, they were going to be famous people. Mm-hmm. They were going to be worthy. So Jefferson actually, in France, commissions uh, portraits of himself, of Adams, John, John Paul Jones, he was, he was collecting these portraits of these famous Americans. They were quite aware of, the, of their, the possibility they would be famous. And they knew it. I mean, once the country's established, the people who created it are going to be famous, world famous, historical figures. So, there's a, so they're, they're quite self-conscious when they're writing the letters. I think particularly Jefferson, who's always aware of, of posterity and what, what people would think of him. So his letters are much more careful. Uh, Adams tended to be uh, more excitable and just let loose, and he obviously didn't pay as much attention to what he was saying when he got rolling in his uh, in his 
prose, but they saved their letters, fortunately. Now, they didn't save the letters to their, uh, Jefferson didn't save the letters to his wife. That was just, he felt that's a private world, and he, he burned them. And fortunately, Adams, the Adamses thought differently. Uh, Washington destroyed all his letters to, to Martha. Uh, there, there was this feeling that the public letters are, are fine and they should be saved, but, but private letters shouldn't. But the Adamses, Abigail and John, felt differently and they, they both saved their letters. They were quite self-conscious about what they were, what they were saving. Well, listen, Gordon, I'd like to get into the personal side of these two amazing patriots with some questions that all end with John or Tom. For example, who was the better dresser, John or Tom? Oh, sound good? Thomas, yeah, yeah, no doubt. All right. Who was driven more to succeed, John or Tom? Well, that would be hard. Uh, They're both very ambitious, although Jefferson denied his ambition. Uh, he certainly was ambitious. Adams wore his ambition on his sleeve. So that's the difference between the two. Who was more loud and outspoken, John or Tom? Oh, that's John. Oh, that's John. Uh, Tom uh, Tom is a private person. He doesn't reveal what he thinks. It was a source of his success in a way. He doesn't tell people what he thinks. Uh, Adams could be quite bold and would say to people, precisely what he thought and of course that he offended people as a consequence yeah. so uh, that's the difference we, we had a guest on on a re- recent episode of american potus that he said john adams would be the one most likely to have a twitter account because oh. <laughs> he will Probably, he, will, he right. wants to tell everybody what he thinks <laughs> right he would be more trump-like yeah. than yeah. Uh, than jefferson right all right, next one. Who was more of a bookworm, John or Tom? Well, again, I think that they both were. And you know, really readers and collect book collectors. They collected different things. Adams was far more interested in history and battles and things like that. When they went to England together as tourists, Jefferson wanted to go and see the gar- English gardens because he was interested in gardening. Adams wanted to go to the old battlefields of the civil of the English Civil War, so but they were they were both book collectors and and readers. Jefferson, of course, collected so many books that he when he donated them or gave them, sold them, I should say, to the uh, U.S. government. It became the basis for the Library of Congress. He needed the money. Next question: Who would we rather have dinner with, John or Tom? Well, that's hard too, but I might personally, I would prefer to have dinner with John, but uh, he, uh, Jefferson was an unbelievable dinner master at a dinner party. He held them uh, all the time, almost every day in the White House. Of course, they were held in the mid-afternoon. He'd invite congressmen over, and he ran the conversation beautifully, uh, and everyone was invited, and he used them to build a political, uh, his political strength. He was, he was great at it. There's no doubt they all were impressed. But Adams would have been more interesting, at least from my point of view. Okay, kind of along the same line here. Who would we rather see going out on a date with our daughter, John or Tom? <laughs> well, <laughs> Tom would have impressed you as a, as a father because he was utterly polite. 
politeness. He he just he was just well mannered. He was the perfect English gentleman in every way. He always said the right thing. Uh, you would have been as a father. You would have been impressed by him. So you'd want him to go out with your daughter. Who would be most likely to host their own podcast, John or Tom? Well, I guess it would be John because he liked to sound off on what he thought. Yeah, good point. Uh, good Jefferson point. would. Jefferson was reserved and would would really. Jefferson would have spouted uh, the conventional liberal line at the time, uh, but he wouldn't have revealed himself in any way. Uh, he would have been interested in in politics and in, in Republican notions, and he would have been using the podcast to promote that. He was a great propagandist, but he wouldn't have been uh, revealing of anything that would have been uh, personal. We could ask Tom to help with the research and give John the microphone. There you go. There you go. Right. Right. (laughs) Okay. My last question. And as if all of my questions are unfair, this one is very unfair. Uh, Who would have a better chance at getting elected president today, John or Tom? Oh, there's no doubt of Jefferson. Jefferson, you know, created, he wrote the Declaration of Independence. All men are created equal. And he believed that. I mean, he believed, uh, he had doubts about uh, blacks. But like most liberals at the time, it was the enlightened, enlightenment position. You started with a blank slate, a Lockean blank slate, and whatever you became as your life proceeded was due to the environment. So he's a he's a he's a, a nurture person all the way. That's why he's interested in education. So that you start with a blank slate and and we're all the same. Now Adams doubted that. In fact, said it was just not true. He said we're all born different and we're not born equal. And he contested Adams contested the basic premises of American culture or our American dream, if you will. He didn't believe that all men are created equal, and he didn't think the United States was something special. So um, I think we would Jefferson would be would be the most electable person. You know, he was made famous by really famous by by Lincoln. Lincoln is the one who said all honor to Thomas Jefferson, mm-hmm. and he picks up on the Declaration and makes that statement: "All men are created equal," the basis for America's creed. And in some sense, Lincoln is the creator of the of the founders because many of the antebellum period, people talked about the founders or the founding fathers. They meant the 17th century founders, you know, William Penn, John Smith, William Bradford, John Winthrop. These are the founders. But it's Lincoln who uh, almost single-handedly says, no, the founders are, are Jefferson the fellow framers of the Constitution and the Declaration. Mm-hmm. So um, there's no doubt that Jefferson would be the, the the man who could get elected because he he had the American he created the American creed, if you if you will. So mm-hmm. that that would that would be uh, very attractive. Became very attractive for everyone. Well, Doctor Wood, thank you so much for joining us today on American POTUS. A fascinating discussion. True, truly fascinating. Thank you so much for taking the time. Well, I've enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. The American POTUS podcast is produced by the National Museum of American Presidents. Graphic designed by the Thought Bureau. An original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. 
If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, you can always send us a note at AmericanPOTUS.com or stop by our social pages on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Finally, it's our presidential last words from these two founding fathers. Thomas Jefferson's last recorded words, quote, No doctor, nothing more. And the last words from John Adams, quote, Thomas Jefferson survives. <laughs>